0: My guest today is Professor William Zame, who is Professor of Economics and Mathematics at UCLA. His recent research includes work on the impact of culture, on economic outcomes in diverse societies, informational asymmetries and in macroeconomics, experimental financial markets, and a number of topics in machine learning. He is currently co-editor of Economic Theory and Associate Editor of Theoretical Economics. Welcome, Bill.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Sure, yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your um, working papers that is yet to be published entitled Linking Social and Personal Preferences, uh, in which you say the attitudes of a decision maker toward riskless and risky choices, both personal choices and social choices enter virtually every realm of individual decision making. Uh, the paper asks when it is possible to link these attitudes. I find this paper extremely interesting, Bill. Obviously, it has implications for, uh, as you describe here, for uh, people who are in public office, uh, perhaps uh, C-level execs in large companies, and so on. And, and so, 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 what do you mean by the linking personal choices and social choices?
1: Um, so. The idea of the paper, uh, and it started out as a purely experimental paper, turned into a theoretical paper, and is now the paper you've seen, has both a theoretical part and an experimental part. The experimental part is trying to test the theory. Um, But the idea of the paper is that we, the decision maker is us, not just the president of the United States, but we make choices in... Many different domains, so we make a choice of um, how to divide money between ourselves and someone else mm. we make and let 's think of that as a social choice we make a choice of um, how to divide, how to um, choose uh, what to do in situations that involve risk only to us, and then yeah. we also make decisions in especially if we're the president or a decision maker who's making decisions for other people, we make decisions in situations where there's um, risk for us and for others. And the question is that third domain seems like it's a combination of the first two domains. And if people have consistent preferences then theory tells you that under certain circumstances it's possible to infer choices in the third domain preferences in the third domain from about observations of preferences in the first two domains. Right. so the paper um, establishes this idea theoretically and then try and then there's an experiment uh, in which in the laboratory we have student participants, as most economic experiments that are done in laboratories are done with undergraduates. Uh, And in the laboratory, we give subjects choices in the three domains, and we see to the extent that it's possible whether the theory looks good. And the result, I think, is that um, my colleagues and I don't necessarily interpret the result the same way. I interpret the, re- the results of the experiments to say that um, most people behave according to the theory, and a significant number of people really do not.
0: And so, so let me ask you that uh, on that bill. So, so what does the theory predict? How? how sh- what, what does the theory say about how people should behave?
1: Well. When, remember, should here is simply a matter of consistency. There's yeah. no moral judgment being applied here. We're right. just asking if there are people's choices in the three domains are consistent. And what the theory says is that if you can observe certain things in the first two domains, then you can completely infer what people will do in the third domain. In the laboratory experiment, um, it turns out that you can't always observe what you need to observe, but for some people you can. So, in one part of the experiment, people are given a, a sum of money and they're asked to divide the sum of money between themselves and someone else, an anonymous other person. Yeah. Um, some people keep everything and give nothing. Let's call those people selfish. That's not a particularly good description, but let's call them selfish. So for selfish people, it should be the case that um, their decisions in the domain where they're mixing, um, there's mixture of uncertainty and social choice um, should be completely determined Uh, should be the same as in the pure social choice, sorry, in the pure risk experiment, because they don't care about others. Mm -hmm. So as far as they're concerned, if I toss a coin, comes up heads, you get $5 and I get $3. If it comes up tails, I get $5 and I get $20 and you get $1. Um, I'm going to choose based the. Um,
0: the five and three,
1: the five entry, because the truth, yeah. the truth is, I don't care about you. I don't care about the fact that you're going to get more or less. So if I don't, put yeah. So up, it's the, a, the social choices. The, yeah. the the uncertainty in the social choices
0: is irrelevant. Yeah. So it's a it's a very simple objective function, right? So essentially, all the individual has to do is to maximize. Uh, maximize the um, uh, what, what he or she is getting. Um, and you know, it doesn't really matter.
1: Yo, I, I you want know, to interrupt. So, yeah. um, you have to keep in mind, I, I think I didn't say this very well, you have to keep in mind that when we before we toss the coin, you don't know how much you're going to be getting. You'll be either getting, depending on which outcome ob- obtains, Either you'll be getting twenty dollars or one dollar, or you'll be getting five dollars or three dollars, depending oh, okay. on what the timeline says or tails. So it's you want to maximize your welfare, taking into account the payoffs and the uncertainty. Now, right. standard economic theory says that people should maximize expected utility for these yeah. kinds of stakes. People, it seems like people should maximize their expected payoffs, but very few people do that. And mm-hmm. in fact, behavior in these environments is very complicated, that across individuals. So people are doing, people do things that are sensible, but don't look at all like what theory predicts.
0: Yeah. So, so from my own understanding, Bill. So if if the coin turns up head it's a five and three split, uh, but like Sandy, you don't know whether you're going to get the five or the three,
1: no, right? Yeah, so let me, let me try again. I, I think I said yeah. that madly. So yeah. suppose you were asked to choose a five-three split or a, let's make it $8 both times, or yeah. a two-six split. Right. Okay. Um, you have to make a choice of one or the other. If the coin comes up heads and you have chosen five three, then you'll get five. If the coin, if you comes up heads and you have chosen two, six, you'll get two. If the coin up, comes up tails, you'll get either three or six, depending on which, which you have chosen. But you have to choose first and then the coin toss comes afterwards. So clearly you'd rather have six dollars than five dollars. On the other hand, the first choice, which is between Uh, sorry, the first choice where you'll get either five or three has the same expected payoff, but is less risky. So if you are averse to risk, then you ought to choose five, three. Um, And not everybody does. And we've also got much more complicated choices for people to choose
0: among. Right. Right. Okay. And so, so so from your interpretation of the experiment is that uh, generally people do what, what the theory says, but there are a lot of exceptions. And hence, uh, you have to look for some, some explanation why that's the case.
1: Um, I'm not sure that that's what I'd say. Um, yeah. Uh, I would say something slightly different. Namely, my conclusion from this, or my inference is a better word, my inference from this is that a substantial majority of people are consistent and Mm. uh, a substantial minority of people are internally inconsistent because what they do is inconsistent. They behave differently in environment A than in environment B. And this is particularly important because one of the big questions about experimental economics is we conduct an experiment in the laboratory, but we're worried about what the external validity of the conclusions are. Uh, yes. People in the world behave the way they do in the laboratory. And are people in the world like the students in the laboratory at all? Mm. And so the result of this experiment suggests that there are a lot of people who are inconsistent even in the laboratory. So there's no reason to think that their behavior out of the laboratory would be consistent with, would look like their behavior inside the laboratory.
0: Is it because uh, they do not know how to maximize uh, expected returns from the experiment or, or something else?
1: Oh, it's definitely something else because there are people who are doing things which by theory are odd, but who are still perfectly consistent. So they're doing something that one might think is odd. They're maximizing something uh, and they're doing it in a consistent way. They're just not maximizing expected return or even expected utility.
0: Hmm. Is there, I uh, I hate to ask this, Bill, but uh, is there something that says, uh, uh, there are some people who want to um, both maximize their utility but also uh, uh simultaneously maximize the disutility uh for the <laughs> for the society in well, some way uh,
1: so one of the things that at issue is the opposite of altruism is spite yeah right? and in these experiments, you do see spite mm. um the experiment, however, is set up so that it's not you would not expect to see much spite because the other person is anonymous to you. Yeah. Um, there are uh, other experiments where you don't know literally who the person is. You don't know their name, but you've interacted with them in the past. And depending on your interaction to them in the past, you may be trustful, or mistrustful, you may be altruistic or you may be spiteful, and you do see altruistic behavior and you do see spiteful behavior
0: right and and those behaviors appear consistent so this is uh, this is what I found interesting in your concluding remarks in the paper that you know you talk about character of an individual. Uh, it's an important sort of measurement. Uh, democratic societies should should think about if if that person is going to become uh, become um, or or run for public office or something along those lines, right?
1: Well, so I think that we, when we got st- um, sorry in the middle of this paper, this project has been going on for quite a few years, more than I yeah. care to admit or care to think about, Um, but in the middle of this, we were thinking very much about politics. And we were thinking about what many people have said, that in choosing a president, character matters above all. Um, And so if you believe that, then the question is, can you infer from what you observe about a person's private choices enough about their character to understand something about uh, how they will make social choices, how they'll behave in office. And right. the answer is, there's an issue about what you can observe, but the answer is, if they're consistent, then the answer is yes. Uh, and so there's a question of, are people consistent?
0: And you found them to be consistent, right, in the experiment?
1: Uh I think about two- thirds of the people are yeah. pretty consistent, uh, and I would say about one fifth of the people, so a substantial minority are really quite inconsistent
0: and so so that's a, so <laughs> multiple things there. One is uh, if you believe character is the governing criteria for. Uh, for the for a leader of a nation, for example, uh, then uh, the the first question is, can you actually observe uh, the character? Can you observe the actions of that individual in private life? And if you can, uh, the probability of that feeding into um, the public life appears to be quite high. Uh,
1: Yes, I think so.
0: And so this hypothesis that character governing criteria for a leader seems to be the right, right notion.
1: Well, without trying to comment too much on current politics, that assumes that... Let me, let me put it differently. Um, yeah. There seem to be a lot of people who believe that you cannot judge how someone's going to behave in office by how they have behaved before they were in office. Hmm. Um, I would argue that you probably can if they're consistent and there's certainly no reason to believe they'll behave better when they're in office than they have behaved in their private lives.
0: Right. And and it's it's not you know just just the U.S. I think it is potentially a generally applicable uh, applicable idea. Now, clearly, this is not something you can operationalize <laughs> in politics. I don't think, at least.
1: Well, it depends on what you mean by operationalize. Um, yeah. If we go move away from the United States, but we move, say, to the United Kingdom, um, yes. if you ask. Me, an observer, an interested observer, but from outside, whether Boris Johnson's behavior in office has been consistent with his behavior before he was in office, uh, the answer is absolutely yes.
0: Hmm. Right, and and uh, and so so the, you know, I, I you could potentially say that Beryl, for most demo, demo, democracies most leaders, most contemporary re- leaders, I think the answer would be yes. And so so that the question would be, in a democratic system, are voters really taking that into account when they make their choices, or it is just a notion that is somewhat cosmetic in nature?
1: I think it varies a lot according to yeah. the situation, according to the candidates. Um, if you look at, a, at past history of US elections, um, for example, um, Edmund Muskie was the front runner for the Democratic nomination at some point. Um, there was a public, not uh, emotional attack on his wife, he defended her in public and he was seen to be crying. People interpreted hmm. this as weakness on his part and this candidacy sank like a stone. Um, the best example is Gary Hart. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Before, in the year before uh, the election, Gary Hart was thought to be the leading Democratic candidate Um, There were rumors circulating that he had a mistress. And um, he, he of course, denied it. And in a press conference, he said, I don't have a mistress. I lead an incredibly boring life. And if you don't believe me, follow me around.
0: (laughs) And somebody did. did
1: follow him around. And the next day, they caught him with his mistress. The next day. Now, this is a perfect example. And of course, his candidacy sank like a stone. It resurfaced a bit later because these scandals tend to be short-lived. But the thing that was really, that really got to most people was not that he had a mistress, not that he denied it, not that he was caught, but that after challenging people to follow him around, he promptly took no pains to be careful. And so this suggested that he was a very careless person. And the last thing you want in a president is a very careless person.
0: Yeah, but all those norms uh, Bill are all out of the window um, if you study more recent phenomena. So I think we used to be, when I came to the US in the mid 80s, uh, my uh, expectation of an American president was substantially different uh, from what it is today. Uh, and so, so there, there is a you know, sort of a historic downgrading of expectations, I think.
1: I'm not so sure that that is the right interpretation. So yeah. um, I don't know a lot of people who Voted for Donald Trump, either this time or four years ago. Not sure I know any. I mean, I sorry, I know that I know some, but I've never. Not that I, I not, haven't talked to them about politics. So my yeah. impression of what Trump voters think is garnered from interviews that I've seen, which are not exactly random samples, and um, discussions in the press. My impression or the the inference I draw is that there are two things going on with a lot of people. One is there's a tremendous distrust of what of media and they get all their news from sources that are not reliable. So the set of. I mean, there's a famous quote by, um, I forget who, which says, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but they're not entitled to their own facts. But <laughs> right. these people have different facts than yep. the people who read the New York Times. So there was a survey done a couple of years ago about how informed people were as a function of where they got their news. And hmm. the people who, got their news from NPR were by and large the most, the best informed. The people who got their news from Fox News were the worst informed. And they were, the people who watched Fox News were less well informed than the people who didn't have any news sources at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like what I would call belief-based decision-making. So the one-fifth Uh, of the inconsistency you found in the experiment, Uh, we have similar situations in corporate environments, right? Um, Decision makers, uh, you know, make decisions based on gut feel, belief, uh, and it doesn't really matter what the data might might say, uh, because the belief is going to override data. And so, So so my observation is that this has nothing to do with education. It has nothing to do with any of the characteristics people think about, but it has everything to do with a decision process that is sort of faulty to start with.
1: Yes, I think that's right. I I, I think it, it is correlated with education in the sense that people who have gone through certain kinds of rigorous education, um have learned to use data in reaching conclusions and to rely less on beliefs and gut instinct um, but i agree with what you're saying um, you know i would i yeah. have been interviewed a couple of times on a different show about politics and one of the things Uh, one of the discussions that came up, what I I prefaced my remarks with, I attributed the quote to the person who made it, which is, in God we trust, all others must bring data. (laughs) um, It seems to me that there are a lot of people who think that what people in authority say is true, and they don't brook any disagreement with it. And the way they don't brook any disagreement with it is not that they take what someone in authority says and they look and look at the facts and find conflicts. They take what someone in authority says and they listen to a particular collection of news sources, which reinforce what that st- that statement and don't allow any contrary data to be presented.
0: Right, right. I want to jump into another paper, Bill. So this one is entitled Asset Pricing and Asymmetric Reasoning. It's sort of tangentially related to what we are well, talking about. I don't about, think tangential so...
1: at all, actually. <laughs> um, I think it's quite yes. similar. So it's quite in the same vein. Yeah. Um, so right. what can I tell you about that paper?
0: Yeah, so you know, I was just going to uh, ask you to to kind of set the context. So you say we present a theory and experimental evidence on pricing and portfolio choices under asymmetric reasoning. So, so here again, you know, we have some expectations out of economics that people maximize, uh, they create efficient portfolios, and so on. But 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 what we are finding here is slightly different. Well, right? I
1: um, so let me give a little a backstory, a little more. Of the- Yeah. So a number of people of whom the most prominent is Eugene Fama, who got a Nobel Prize for this, um, have asserted the idea that markets are informationally perfect. And what they mean by that is that although people who trade in the markets begin with private information that's relevant about what the true prices of assets should be the process of trading causes the prices to move in such a way that it reveals all the information. Now, there's a lot of doubt about whether that's true. Um, Fama has a lot of data indicating that it's true, but it's not, I don't know how to put this, it's not exactly global data. It's sort of, we can observe information leaking into the market in the course of a day as the way a stock moves. So what happens following an announcement, for example? How long will it take for the effect of the announcement to make its way into prices? Um, but and announcements are not exactly private. I mean, they're public, but not everybody pays attention to them. The question is, yeah. can I infer enough about what the announcement says from the fact that other people are suddenly buying a lot of stock, bidding up the price. Well, so the announcement must have been good, or people are sort of dumping it, so the announcement must have been bad. So I learned this. Um, And there's a lot of economic theory that provides situations in which this should come to pass. After we settle on prices, um, we don't necessarily all know everything, but we all know everything that's relevant to the prices. So yeah, Economic theory generally thinks that um, information should leak into prices. And the idea is the following. Um, suppose that you have information that I don't have, and your information suggests that the price of this asset should be higher than it actually is. Yeah. When you start buying this asset, which drives the price up, I should make inferences about what you've learned. And if I know that you have information that I don't have, then my inference will be that your information is good.
0: Right. Okay.
1: Now, the problem with this argument is that my inference may be that you think that the information is good, but in my model of the world, the information is bad because I don't have the same model of the world as you do. Right. So that the reason that information doesn't leak into prices is not that uh, it's hidden, it's that we interpret information differently. So in the, in the experiment, instead of giving people private information, we give them public information, but we give it to them in a way that's hard to understand. Okay, And so some people understand it well and make the right inferences. And some people don't. And in more in settings where a very big majority of people do not know how to interpret information um prices don't look the way they quote should in situations where a big majority of people or a, a big chunk of people um, do interpret properly uh everything works fine prices look like they're supposed to and the complica- but, and the complication is do you understand that you don't understand the world or do you think that you understand the world but you're mistaken
0: yeah but if if there's one participant bill um, in the market with with infinite resources uh, and and the right interpretation of the data, wouldn't that participant make the prices efficient?
1: Um, the answer is, provided that the other people understand, that well sorry let me um back let's back up a little yeah there's a very very nice experiment that was done a couple of years ago uh about asset markets with asset markets and the experiment found that strange things can happen in an asset market when the people in the market um are let's this is not quite right, are not very smart. (laughs) Um, So what they did is they gave people a little test beforehand and they then took the top 15% of people who did well in this test and they ran the experiment with those people. So now they have a room full of people, all of whom are in this sense smart. And what happens is basically the same thing. The market gets to, you know, doesn't settle in the, quote, right place. So they did one more experiment. They took a sample of this 15% of people who were smart. They put them in the room. And before the experiment started, they told everybody in the room how the people in the room were selected. So now the difference is that in the last story, people in the room know that other people in the room are smart by this criterion. Hmm. And now everything works beautifully. That is, information is revealed, et cetera. And this this cast a lot of light on experiments, the original experiments, which had been done at Caltech. Um, Because the biggest difference between Experiments done at Caltech and experiments done at a random university are not only that the students at Caltech are smarter, but that everybody knows the students are smarter. And when you do this experiment, as some colleagues of mine in London did, with professional traders, the same thing happens. That is, if everybody is smart, everybody is sophisticated. And everybody knows that everybody else is sophisticated. So it's not just that the market is populated by sophisticated people. The market is populated by sophisticated people who know that the market is populated by sophisticated people. So if I, so if you're, in fact, informed, let's go back to your question. If you're, in fact, yeah. well-informed and you have infinite resources and you're drawing the correct inferences... In the standard story, you would in fact drive prices to where they should be. But in fact, whether or not you will drive prices to where they should be depends on whether other people interpret your actions correctly. And if they don't know that um, you have the same model of the world as they do, then they will not interpret your act or may not interpret your actions correctly, and the net result is that the outcome may be very very different. And in fact, that's exactly what happens in the experiments. Um, yeah. So it turns out what's important is, again, that there be enough smart people who can be perceived to be smart in the market. So when we do the experiment with all Caltech undergraduates, enough people figure out the truth that everything works fine. When we do it with UCLA undergraduates, it depends, but sometimes enough people figure things out. When we did it with undergraduates at the University of Utah, no one figured out what was going on, and the market gets completely screwed up. And then we mix yeah. Caltech students with UC- with. Utah students, well, that's enough smart people. Smart smart, is not right, but sophisticated
0: in a way. Yeah. No, the the difficulty for me, Bill, has always been, um, so we don't have equal participants in the market, right? So we have some hedge funds with, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of assets. And we have day traders trading with $1,000. And if the hedge fund, for argument's sake, is, is, um, is a participant who knows efficient price, it doesn't really matter if the 10 million day traders with $1,000 observe them, interpret them, or anything, because they can take the counter trade uh, i 'm perfectly fine if I were the hedge fund i am perfectly fine people you know running around with <laughs> with chickens a head cut off right i mean it's actually a good thing for me well
1: yes so in the in many models, there are noise traders and the noise traders yeah. which are not rational but the but the um setting you describe is not a realistic setting because if you think about it there isn't one hedge fund. There are many hedge funds and they don't all do the same thing. And the reason is that they have different models of the world. In fact, they advertise that they have different models of the world. If everybody had the same model of the world, there would be no reason why you should... um, uh, There would be no reason why you should... Give your money to a hedge fund or to a financial right. advisor. You might as well just buy the market. But lots of people don't yeah. do that, and lots of hedge funds or financial advisors claim that they outperform the market. It's not it's not clear what the evidence is. Um,
0: <laughs> the evidence is evidence is that there is zero alpha well, <laughs> in the market, um, or, on average. Yeah, but you know,
1: I think that. um, Warren Buffett's operation has outperformed the market. Jim Simon's operation has enormously outperformed the market. Um in some
0: some regimes though, Bill, I think, you know, so um if you if you if you, you know sort of risk-cut just returns of Berkshire Hathaway, I, I haven't looked at the data recently, but yeah, you can see there are periods where there is excess returns. But there are long periods of time where there is negative alpha or zero
1: alpha. Yeah, yes, I think true. on the whole, I mean, yes. Berkshire Hathaway isn't exactly the right comparison because Berkshire Hathaway is not actually operating like a hedge fund. You know? um, yes. But Jim Simon's operation, Renaissance, te- Renaissance Technology, is a better example. And they have outperformed the market, not all the time, but very consistently for a long time now. Um you know Jim Simons, who's extremely who started life as a mathematician and was a world-class mathematician, by the way, he was a very smart guy. And um uh sorry, my uh computer okay. is telling me something happened. Um and their algorithms seem to work pretty well. Um but at, at any rate, um, the the point is that in order for the informed people to move the market to the right place, so to speak, uh, yeah. it has to be necessary either that they're sufficiently large that they're really dominating the market. I'm going to give you an example, by the way, where this wasn't true. Um, They're sufficiently large so that they're dominating, completely dominating the market, or people believe in them. So let me give you an example where this is not, was not true. So in the 80s, there was a very big market crash one day. Yeah. And the explanation of what happened went like, went as follows. Many people interpreted trades as having information, large trades as having information. In fact, however, many of the large trades were being conducted by programs. They were program trading, and they had no information in them at all. So these programs were selling or even selling short, and many participants in the market took this as negative information where there was not informative at all that caused the programs to sell even more. And there was a cycle and in the bottom really dropped out and really dropped out very, very quickly. And it was discovered afterwards that in that period, something like 15% of all trades were program trades, which had nothing to do with information at all. And the reaction of the people who regulate the market, regulate the, stock, the New York Stock Exchange, was that program trades would have to be labeled as program trades yeah. uh, so that you could understand what trades might be driven by information and what trades would are were not driven by information. So what happened in the crash was that I saw the program trading, selling. I thought the program had negative information about the true value of the asset, so I started selling as well. But I was mistaken about the program's model of the world.
0: Hmm. Yeah, in the in the status quo though, <laughs> Bill, the computer is a lot smarter than humans. Um, um. Well, the
1: question <laughs> is not whether the computer is smarter than humans. I'm not even sure what yeah. what that means. The question is, is the computer programmed better than humans?
0: Yeah, it's less noisy. It's less emotional. So you can see people sitting in front of a computer trading. Humans generally tend to reduce alpha significantly. Um, that machines that are doing you know sort of mind uh, mindless programmatic. Uh, trade, and increasingly, you know, those computers can actually get information, too, and analyze that information. But one thing that I find very interesting in the paper, uh, Bill, is that you say, you make a distinction between ambiguity-averse and Mm risk-averse agents. Um, And so so a risk-averse agent is somebody who understands the risk, so there is certain probability of future states of the world, whereas the ambiguity-averse uh, agent doesn't like any uncertainty of of anything, well, right? It just wants something. I, constant. I would
1: like. I would make a different distinction. So let's begin by distinguishing yeah. what I mean by risk and what I mean by ambiguity. By risk, yeah. I mean situations in which either there are a something very like objective probabilities or to which we can assign with some confidence subjective probabilities. And by ambiguity, I mean situations in which we're unsure of the outcome or we're unsure of what's going to happen, yeah. we're uncertain about what's going to happen, and we can't assign probabilistic probabilities. To be averse to risk means you don't want to take fair bets on the cost of a coin. The, the toss of a coin. Um, right. And for large stakes, most people are risk averse, but the difference between being risk averse and ambiguity averse is that um, although most people are risk averse, the question is, how do people behave when they're confronted with situations in which they don't know how to assign probabilities? For example, what does it mean to say that the probability that Mitt Romney will be reelected senator from Utah is 95 percent? What does that mean? I mean, I understand what it means when you say you think it's 95 percent, but uh, to me, it seems quite ambiguous. And there's a lot of evidence that people do not treat situations where they can't figure out the probabilities the same way they treat situations where they can figure out the probabilities. So people can be, uh, they treat ambiguity differently than they treat risk. So they can be risk neutral, but averse to ambiguity. And there are some people who sort of like ambiguity, just as there are some people who sort of like risk. But by and large, <laughs> by and large, it seems that people who are more risk-averse <coughs> are also more likely to be averse to ambiguity. And the question is, in what situations will you perceive ambiguity? So if, if you see yeah. that I'm behaving in a certain way, do you regard this as... A risky, you know, inform you about risk or do you treat my behavior as ambiguous? And your reaction to it can be very different depending on whether you interpret this as risk and assign some probabilities to it or you interpret it as ambiguous. And this is really very true in the world. Um, uh, If I can can go back to politics. Yeah. So think about. Um, In our invasion of Iraq one of the arguments for invading Iraq was that Saddam Hussein had and would be willing to use weapons of mass destruction and the argument one of the arguments supporting the idea that he had weapons of mass destruction was well he had the opportunity to deny it and to allow inspectors to prove that he didn't have weapons of mass destruction. And he didn't take that opportunity. So that should be taken as evidence that he didn't have weapons of mass destruction. They Sorry, they did have weapons of mass destruction. Now, yes. the problem yes. with that line of reasoning is that assumes that you know what Saddam Hussein's utility function was. And right. the truth is, you don't. His utility function is... You know, the way he views things is, to you, ambiguous. So you can't assign probabilities to it. You have to say, well, there's some possibility, but we don't know how likely it is, that the reason he won't admit to not having weapons of mass destruction and that he won't allow inspectors is that'll make him look weak to his neighbors. He doesn't want to look weak to his neighbors. It's important that he looks strong And to him, it's more important to look strong than to worry about the United States invading Iraq. So his, our evaluation of Saddam Hussein should take into account that this is a situation where we can't really assign probabilities. We should think of this as ambiguous.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, this binary, events, right, yes or no events, uh, where you don't have a lot of experiments, um, assigning a probability, like you say, is sort of a futile exercise to start with. Um, you know, I, you, you, you cannot be proven wrong if I say there is a probability that, you know, uh, world is going to, not uh, that would be too much, but uh, there is a probability that we're going to get there is a probability of 65%, there's going to be a third wave of COVID, right? If if a third wave of COVID happens, I will say, look, I was right. If it doesn't happen, I would say there was one third chance well, it would not fact, happen.
1: Yeah, well, absolutely. And... <laughs> and in fact, um, the people who say all the pollsters were wrong, they're predicting Hillary Clinton would win. No, nobody predicted that Hillary Clinton would win with 100% probability. I don't think her win probability ever got above 80% um you know and to say that um 20% event 20% probability events don't happen is absurd of course they happen they happen all the time
0: right right yeah so you say uh, going back to the paper again bills you say uh, if the agents are ambiguity averse these agents become price insensitive so you know, yeah. Uh, so so, so what do you mean
1: um, the question is the following. Um,
0: yeah.
1: If you think that the value of the asset is go- the true value of the asset is going to be $100 if the coin comes up heads and $50 if the coin comes up tails, um, then there is a price at which you're willing to buy the asset before the coin is tossed. Presumably, you're certainly willing to pay $50. Presumably, you're certainly not willing to pay $100. But um, presumably, and maybe you're willing to pay $75. Maybe you're risk averse. You're willing to pay less. Let's suppose that you're willing to pay $60. Then I tell you, well, it's not a fair coin. It's going to come up heads a little more often. Say, 55% of the time, it's going to come up heads. The amount you'll be willing to pay for this asset, well, hedge is a good outcome. So the amount you're going to be willing to pay goes up. And conversely, uh, if I uh, ask, at what, what would you do for these prices? Uh, if the price is 60, uh, $75, you want to buy or sell. Well, in this case, you want to sell. The price is $55 you want to buy. And there's exactly one price at which you'll be indifferent. But if I don't tell you anything about this coin, if I say, um, I'm going to roll a die, and my colleague Charlie Plott had in his experimental lab a 10-sided die. Now, and if the number comes up odd, it'll be $100. If it comes up even, it'll be $50. The problem is that you don't know what the probabilities of coming up odd or even are on the 10-sided die. But there are no yeah. regular 10-sided solids. So for sure, um, and not for sure, but pretty much for sure, the chances of each number coming up are not the same. So the truth is that the probability distribution of this die is ambiguous to you. And you can actually do this experiment and, you will f- and what you will find is, and this is what we found in the different paper, uh, the theory tells you and the experiment bears out that there's a range of prices at which you want to buy, a range of prices at which you want to sell. And there's a b- big range of price. There can be a very big range of prices in the middle in which when you hold the asset, you don't want to sell it. When you don't hold the asset, you don't want to buy it. And that's not possible if you were selling probabilities.
0: So that is what you mean by prices. Prices
1: move and people don't do anything. Yeah. And indeed, in that experiment, you see that a lot. And this is, uh, carries over into the paper we're now talking about. Because when I see you taking certain actions, I don't think that you have the same model. I worry that you don't have the same model of the world as I do. Then I may interpret Uh, your behavior as ambiguous rather than good or bad rather than having good information or bad information. I interpret it as ambiguous and my reaction to ambiguity is to avoid it.
0: Yeah. So you see sort of a similar behavior in stock market also, Bill. So if I hold XYZ company, Uh, I don't want to sell it. Uh, and, the, you know, there's a range of prices. If I don't own it, I don't want to buy it either. I think you see this in as you know in investors. I, I think, type of so, I think
1: you see that for two reasons. One is that there's ambiguity. And the other is there's um, what experimental economists like to call the endowment effect. That people tend to value things they own more than... Things they don't own, even when they're the same thing. Um, there's some issue about whether, to what extent, the endowment effect is real, um, but lots of people believe in it. Yeah.
0: I mean, there is also sort of a, a different version of some cost type thing going on there too. You know, suppose I buy X, Y, C, and even though I know, <laughs> you know, I, I'm holding on to a negative return. I'm not willing to accept it, uh, and I'm just holding out for you know that asset well, to turn to a you know, positive side. If, if you're
1: like uh, me, yeah, and someone taught you to play poker, in my case, a book,
0: yeah,
1: uh, the first thing they tell you is once the money is in the pot, it's not yours anymore. Right? So you shouldn't think that you know, I've got fifty dollars in the pot, other people have seventy-five dollars in the pot. So I really have um, a certain 40% of the pot. No, that's not true. The money isn't yours anymore. If you now have to call a $10 bet, then there'll be $135 in the pot. sorry, $145 in the pot if you call, and you have a chance of winning that. So the true probability should be computed with respect to the actual pot odds. And if you watch... Um, analyses of online poker, Texas Hold'em. The analysts talk about the pot odds all the time, and it's very important that once the money is in the pot, it's not yours. So this is the sunk cost fallacy. Um, and part of the part of the reason I think that people fall prey to this is it's a combination of not understanding sunk costs, but it's also the case that Um, people are very reluctant to admit they made a mistake but Mm -hmm. I want to say one other thing Um, so if you read Daniel Kahneman's book Thinking Fast and Slow which is a very interesting book you see that Kahneman has fallen prey to a very bad uh, he's made a very bad mistake Namely, he has um, violated the dictum, in God we trust, all others must bring data. So the psychologists, Kahneman in particular, but the psychologists generally do experiments by questionnaire, by asking people what they would do. And Kahneman in his book even says something to the effect that um there's no reason to think that people would do something different than what they say. My reaction <laughs> to that is this is an empirical question. Hmm. So why don't we ask people what they would do and then give them the opportunity to actually do it yes. and see if they do what they would say. And guess what? They don't. They don't. Yeah. And so economists do not believe in this kind of experiment. In experiments, what economists do is they make people or they allow people to make decisions and typically real money is involved because you can't say, what would you do if I offered you $100? I have to offer you $100. And it is true that there's no particular reason why these should be different, but this is not a theoretical question. This is an empirical question and you shouldn't confuse theory right. with data. So part of, the, <laughs> right. part of the trouble with experiments is that it's this sort thing we're coming, we, coming back to what we were discussing earlier on, which is um, external validity. I do an experiment with yeah. students, but the market is not populated by students. I do an experiment where, oh, in the first experiments, my colleagues and I did the first financial experiments, the average profit was something like $200 over the course of three hours. And some people made as much as $400. But in the market, we're not talking about hundreds of dollars. We're talking about, even for ordinary investors, tens of thousands of dollars. And for people running funds, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. So yeah. it's not at all clear that people, they're, first of all, they're different people. And secondly, uh, it's not at all clear they would behave the same way out in the
0: world. Right, and if, if it is your job, you know, if you're running a hedge fund, uh, your behavior is going to be, you know, uh, determined, not determined, but influenced by your experience and, and you're doing it over and over again. You have lot of different experiments that you have run. Whereas a student uh, hasn't done that. And I, I so, would like
1: to make yeah. an objection to what you just said, however. If you're running yeah. a hedge fund and you've done lots and lots of experiments, then some of them will have turned out badly. And if the right, right. ones or the wrong ones turn out badly, you won't be running the hedge fund anymore. because people um, the investors typically do not take a very long view so one of the issues with people running companies for example not just investing in stocks or assets but making financial decisions for the company is the people running companies are going to be judged by what's happening now not whether what they did was likely to be correct 70% of the time if they're unlucky they're going to right. lose their jobs so there's right. a tendency to be sometimes overly cautious and it you know it it used to be said that um, no acquisitions person was ever fired for buying uh, equipment from IBM of course that's a very old story but why was that? Well, because you're doing what everybody else is doing. It's hard to go wrong. It's hard to be start blamed. You're doing what everybody else is doing. If you decide to buy from the right. upstart company and it works out, that's fine. If it doesn't work out, you're going to get fired.
0: Yeah, yeah. I want to touch on one other thing before you close, uh, Bill. And uh, So you say in the paper again, without aggregate risk, without aggregate risk, uh, mispricing decreases as the fraction of price-sensitive agents, as the fraction of price-sensitive agents increases. Uh, So first of all, what do you mean by aggregate risk in that context? Um,
1: I think that um, we mean two things. One is that uh, the prices adjust to aggregate what the market thinks is the true risk. So you have an opinion of the true risk. I have an opinion of the true risk. The man behind the tree has an opinion of the true risk. And the price somehow aggregates these beliefs or these opinions. That's one thing. And the other thing is that uh, it aggregates the risk in that it shares the risk. So instead of you bearing all the risk, the risk is shared between you and me. And Uh, At equilibrium, uh, at least if people are sufficiently similar, the risk is shared among people. And if the market operates properly, then more risk will be borne by people who are less averse to risk, and less risk will be borne by people who are more averse to risk. So uh, if I may take a particular example... um, University of California has a defined benefit pension plan. Defined benefit plans are very unpopular these days. However, there's a very, very good justification, theoretical justification for them, which is the general principle is that in dividing risk, you should assign more, what's efficient is to assign more risk to the party that's less risk averse and less risk. The party that's more risk averse well the stock market bounces up and down and you don't get to choose exactly when you're well you get to choose exactly when you're going to retire but you're probably not going to get to choose um which in which five year window you retire and if you retire in a five year window in which the market is down and you have a defined contribution plan you have to take your contributions out, then you're subject to a lot of timing risk. On the other hand, if you have a defined benefit plan, then the university is subject to the timing risk. But the university can average over time. So the university is, just like an insurance company, uh, much less risk averse than you are, much less subject to this, you know, this risk, this timing risk matters a lot less than the university. Um, So um aggregating risk is also about assigning the risk efficiently and prices are supposed to do that.
0: Hmm. Okay, okay. Yeah, we, we didn't get your uh, other papers, bill. perhaps we can do I'm another delighted. one.
1: experiment I think experiments I mean I got into doing experiments quite by accident, but I have found it yeah extremely rewarding for lots of reasons, not least because I've really enjoyed the interactions with my colleagues, Um, and I've learned a lot from them. I learned a lot from Peter Bosards. I learned a lot about how to think about data, which I had never really done before. And that's really stood me in good stead. But um, it's very interesting, I think, to see the extent to which theory works or doesn't work in the laboratory.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is not something, you know, something that we get typically, right? Um, there are some established notions of how markets work, how people make decisions and so on. And so, so these experiments are really insightful. Um, either you're going to uh, confirm the theoretical expectations or you're going to find some deviations and those deviations are going to be more interesting to yeah, explore. So-
1: Early on, um, when we were doing the first experiments and I was giving talks about them, people were saying, why do we have to do experiments? We have all this wonderful data. So the CRSP, the CRISP tapes, record every transaction on the New York Stock Exchange since about 1962. And you think, well, this is wonderful, except the data is in some ways incredibly good in some ways, incredibly bad. If you want to take that data to the economic theory as opposed to the financial theories, so the financial theory is talking about um, the the prices of derived assets. The economic theory is talking about the prices yeah. of fundamental assets. You can't take it to the economic theory because what you need in the economic theory is you need to not know just, you need to know not just 10,000 shares were traded at $1.25. You need to know who bought them and who sold them. And you need to know what their holdings were. And you never see that in the data. So you can't see that except by doing experiments. Right,
0: right. Excellent. Thanks so much, Phil. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Stay safe. Bye bye. Bye.